our Juno award-winning artists are teaching and our um, you know visual artists are are doing all kinds of things with corporations and um, our dancers are speaking to young people and these are these are all facets of being an artist it's they're not um, mutually exclusive they're they're components that make up your career hi my name is Zakira Chubb with Arts Network Ottawa and welcome to the Artpreneur Podcast. To learn more about Arts Network Ottawa, please visit artsnetottawa.ca. These sessions are recordings from the 2020 Artpreneur Conference, delivered in partnership with Wallach's Art Supplies, Invest Ottawa, and Shifter Agency. Last November, this conference was held over three days with art sector leaders and creative entrepreneurs from Ottawa, Ontario, and beyond and it focused on the social and economic disruption caused by COVID-19. If this interests you, hit the subscribe button to receive updates when upcoming sessions are published. This podcast is also available on Spotify and iTunes. In this episode, Jenna Richards leads a panel discussion with Jackie Dutrois, Sarah Hopkin, Claudia Gutierrez, and Carmel Whittle about identity, portfolio careers, and the reality of their artistic practices pre- and post-COVID-19. Um, welcome everyone, bonjour. Uh, it's so nice to be with everyone virtually today. Just quickly before we get into uh, the, the nitty-gritty of it, I'd like to, to let you know how this session is going to run. Uh, I'm going to give a very brief background on what portfolio careers are, because I've been told that not everyone is familiar with that term. Um, and then I'm going to introduce, uh, bring our panelists in so that they can actually self-introduce and describe their career paths and what, they, what they're doing today. Um, and we'll go through a couple different questions, guided questions uh, as a panel. So careers in the arts have long been made up of multiple roles, but despite this fact, the industry has yet to embrace appropriate terminology to disseminate the work style of artists. And by avoiding certain contextualities of professional reality in the arts, we're setting up our young artists and artists at every stage of their career um, for very difficult paths, both in developing their practice and in their personal identities. So one overarching term that we could potentially use to alleviate some of these industry struggles is that of the portfolio career. It could help emerging artists develop realistic expectations, uh, choose to form their practices in sustainable ways without negatively impacting their own self-perception. This term, portfolio career, was established in the 1990s, and at that time, scholars introduced it as a means of um, describing those moving out of organizational management to work in more fluid and independent ways in compartmentalized careers. They predicted that by 2020, many would work in this way and transition away from a typical hierarchical structure and move into forming portfolio work. And although the term did originate in that business sense, it's now broadly applied across disciplines, particularly in the artistic discipline in the 21st century. So portfolio career today consists of multiple roles, part-time or full-time, held at once in short succession, or as a series of concurrent or frequently changing jobs, such as contract or gig work. From my own research, I know that the majority of modern classical musicians earn their livelihood in this manner, uh, not just in Canada, but abroad, and thus they could be categorized as having portfolio careers. In fact, you could argue that these careers have been the typical structure for centuries. I would posit, based on my own uh, research and, and having spoken to many great colleagues, that this applies across, across most artistic disciplines. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, these fantastic panelists who I'm about to bring in in just a second here uh, come from uh, different backgrounds um, and they will explain their own identity, uh, where they, their practice has come from and, and how it's currently formed. Now, I will also just mention that although I'm using the term portfolio career, many people don't use that term to self-describe and that's totally fine. It's a global term. You don't have to say, I have a portfolio career. Um, in order to have one, uh, it's just a term that can, can easily encapsulate a lot of the work that artists do today. So I would like to first turn the mic over to Claudia. Uh, Claudia, please let us know a little bit about your background and uh, your artistic practice. 
Hi, everybody. Um, well, thank you all for, for joining and, and being together virtually. It's great to get together with people who are in the same industry and, and discuss. Um, this is a really interesting topic that I think we, we actually don't have a lot of platforms to talk about. So I'm really excited to delve into this today. Um, but as Jenna mentioned, my name is Claudia Gutierrez. I am an artist um, born and raised in BC and came to Ottawa for my schooling. I studied uh, printmaking and painting and um, graduated in 2011 and uh, did a couple residencies after that, one of which was in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, my, my father's origin country, and um, pivoted my practice from printmaking and painting to textile in 2018. So have been focusing um, on that as a piece. So yeah, I, I spent quite a bit of time after graduation focusing on arts administration. I had studied English literature before I went into fine arts and so had um, some experience in terms of writing and utilized those skills to then uh, work in development. So a lot of grant writing, event planning, um, yeah, honing all of the, the uh, jack-of-all-trades kind of skills that I had, put them together in order to create this portfolio career. Fantastic. And we'll hear a lot more about that as we continue to get into our questions. Thank you, Claudia. I'd like to now pass it over to Jackie. Jackie, could you please let us know uh, a bit about your background and your career? Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for having me here. I echo Claudia in terms of I'm so happy and grateful to be with other peers in the art field. It just always feels so good just to be connected again, um, even if it is virtual. I'm from South Africa. And I immigrated to Ottawa about 10 years ago. But before that, I was traveling with an African circus that actually brought me to Ottawa for the first time. I didn't even know this place existed. Never mind that it was the capital of Canada. Um, and so coming back to Ottawa and then, you know, deciding to reside here, uh, my artistic practice took quite some time to redevelop and to shape itself and started off with first me knocking on doors and trying to find and, and um, create a pathway for myself. But a lot of doors were closed and I firmly believe that everything happens for a reason. And with those doors closed, um, other doors were opened and I just had to turn and see it. And through that, um, I was able to, once you see those doors open, create the opportunities for yourself. So one way was that um, I didn't know of any artists really in Ottawa, so I thought I'd bring the artists to me and started creating events um, in Ottawa as a, as a means to, one, selfish reasons to get to know other artists, and two, to create a platform for emerging artists like myself and other professionals so that we could um, continuously work on our art. And that took off for a while. And then, um, and through that practice of creating events and supporting other artists emerged um, the storyteller within me, which, um, you know, got me working with uh, puppet companies and all different youth companies and just educational work as well as co-owning the Origin Arts and Community Center. That's me in a nutshell. Thank you, Jackie. That's fantastic. And again, we'll hear much more about all of that in a little bit. Um, I'd like to lastly introduce uh, Sarah Hopkin to uh, describe her path and career. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah. Again, so grateful to be here. And thanks, everybody, for making this possible. So I'm a dance artist. I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I moved away from Halifax when I was 17 to study dance professionally in Toronto at Ryerson University um, in their performance dance program. And then after graduating from uh, Ryerson, I spent a year freelancing in, in dance and choreography in Toronto, as well as um, an internship with Motion Dance in Halifax and for the Ottawa International Chamber Music Festival um, as well. And then I spent a year as a junior company member with Toronto Dance Theatre. Um, and on my own time, I began working with a Toronto-based composer, uh, Julia Mermelstein, on the creation of the Toronto Arts Council. I've always been really interested in the relationship between dance and music, so this is sort of the beginning of feeding that curiosity. 
um, then I moved to Ottawa, so that was four years ago now, and I began teaching contemporary dance uh, to the professional ballet division at the School of Dance. And I um, soon after began working for the Ottawa Dance Directive and as a freelance dance artist for other local choreographers that live here in Ottawa. Um, before I moved to Ottawa in the summer um, beforehand, I've been working for Peggy Baker who's a Toronto-based choreographer and artistic director of Piggy Baker Dance Projects as a demonstrator for her classes at the National Ballet School. And this connection um, led to me commissioning her to do a duet for myself and another local dancer here. So that's what I've been up to more recently. And then post-pandemic, uh, I've worked on a couple different Zoom creation projects and I have a project of my own that's now being adapted for film with the uh, composer Pierre-Luc Clément. That's <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. Um, before we uh, explore the idea of how the pandemic has affected some of our portfolio careers, I will also give a brief background uh, on my own portfolio career. Um, I'm a classical musician. I was also born and raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I moved to Toronto as well to uh, study at the University of Toronto for piano performance. And for me, my path um, at that time was focused very much on performing, uh, but at the same time I was really involved with the community. And so I, I decided that actually what I wanted to do was to bridge the gap between these two areas of my life. And I, I took um, the time at the end of my undergraduate degree to look for the right next step. And for me that was to um, step out of the the artistic field very briefly to have training in the nonprofit leadership uh, program at Carleton. And I moved to Ottawa to pursue that master's degree. Um, and from there, as soon as I, I completed that degree, and even during that time, I started to integrate my artistic practice here. Um, I was working with community choirs uh, and freelancing. I was still going back and forth between Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, and since graduating, I've worked in uh, a very portfolio manner. I, I'm a programmer for Ottawa Chamber Fest, which is a large music festival here. Um, I'm a pianist. I work with multiple choirs and freelance. Um, I'm a researcher. I, I, I'm now at the University of Ottawa, actually looking at the careers of musicians, uh, performers as they graduate, um, not falling off of the abyss into uh, nothing, knowing what's going on in their careers. Um, and so I, I am constantly migrating between these different identities. Um, and so in, in speaking about these uh, aspects of my career with many of my colleagues, both in music and in other artistic disciplines, I've come to realize over the last decade or so that this is in fact the way that our industry actually works, is that we all um, frequently change our our, our practice, the way that we work. Um, and at different times, different components may take uh, precedence over others. Um, and so it's very fascinating to hear from other people how they've, how they've managed these career paths, which are, are very um, unknown and undetermined. We need proper mentorship and proper discussions about them so that the next generation coming up has a, a good sense of where they're going. So, um, Sarah kind of alluded to this, and I, I will throw it back to her uh, quickly, but in terms of how the pandemic has affected these careers, um, for me, as a, as a performer, a lot of that aspect of my career has um, taken a step back, uh, as most people um, would indicate at this time, performances are just not happening in the way that they have in the past. But I will say that for me, I've also um, been exploring lots of virtual experiences, including recently um, working with the local children's hospital here to develop concerts for children in palliative care um, and other very interesting connections for isolated communities now that we're actually using technology to reach people sometimes this is this is open doors or open windows exactly as Carmel had said at the beginning opening windows is, is there there are some silver linings um, Sarah do you want to briefly uh, talk about a bit more about the pandemic effects on your career Sure. yeah that would be great um, so yeah, as I mentioned before, I've been a part of a couple Zoom creative processes, which have been um, super different, very interesting. And we do, in both cases, we did sort of a live streaming of what we had created for the public, um, which is a very different experience than performing for people live. Um, you don't get that kind of feedback. So that's sort of, I think, something that as 
performing artists were missing maybe the most. Um, and um, in terms of like opening other windows and things like that, it does allow us to train and take classes um, with companies and uh, teachers that, that don't live in your city, um, kind of connects communities in different uh, parts of the world. Um, there's a type of uh, technique called Gaga um, training for dance, and they've been live streaming classes, um, like six classes a day, seven days a week from, uh, from Israel and from um, New York City as well. So things like that are, are really cool. And uh, some of you may know Propeller Dance. It's a company here in Ottawa um, and for all minds and bodies. And uh, I think that they sort of felt that they were maybe one of the only uh, companies like themselves doing the kind of work that they were doing. And, and um, the director was saying that it's been amazing to see other companies in the world that are doing the same kind of inclusive work and to see how they're doing it and kind of give us more information on, on what we can do um, when things are a little bit back to normal. Um, but, but yes, definitely at the beginning, everything just stopped. I think at the beginning we were all sort of like, oh, well, we don't know how long this is going to last. So we'll just put on everything on hold. And now we're sort of in this zone where people are like, okay, we need to adapt. So how can we rehearse? How can we put things online for others to see? How can we keep training? We have to figure out a way that we can keep moving forward with all of this, um, different safety protocols and, and whatnot, but it's an adventure. <laughs> is. Um, Claudia, would you like to also comment on how the pandemic has affected you? Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm a visual artist, so it, it is a little bit different in terms of your output. Um, you know, without really having an audience, you, uh, I have given, you know, tours of my exhibitions, but, but it is quite different from a performing artist's perspective. I was in a unique position to have a, a fairly important exhibition of mine uh, open on March 11th. So it was just a couple days before we really locked down. Um, and it was at the Ottawa Art Gallery. And it was opening with several other exhibitions that night. So it felt like it was um, the night to end all nights. <laughs> Our, the Ottawa arts community really came out and, and celebrated uh, visual arts. And then we all tucked ourselves away in this pandemic. So it was a very surreal experience um, to open a show uh, two nights before it had to close. And um, thankfully it was received very well and created, I, I was able to um, create a lot of connections that opening night and subsequently uh, was picked up by Studio 66, a really wonderful commercial gallery in the Glebe. And so have been building a show for them currently um, that will be uh, up in the end of February, so 2021. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a, an interesting experience to uh, build a show that was then closed build that kind of momentum and community to then have to keep that motivation going virtually and kind of pivot to an online world very quickly. And, um, and then as well with my day job, I work for, for arts court as a, as a booker for, for event spaces and to see so many wonderful festivals and so many, most of our, our, the events that we have in those spaces are returning events so events that have been going on in that space since the 90s even, um, to then have to pivot as well and go online has been such an adjustment. Um, and some of them not do the event at all or, or switch to online has been, yeah, it's been, I don't want to say tumultuous, but in, in certain ways, you know, it's a real adjustment to the, the world we're living in right now. So pandemic aside, I'd like to talk about perceptions um, and 
when each of you was building your career, whether that was at a post-secondary institution or through a formal or informal training when you were young, what was your perception of professional life as an artist in your practice or globally? And how did that identity affect you as you were building um, your own career? Uh, maybe Jackie, we haven't heard from you in a little while. Do you want to take that question first? Sure, thank you. Um, I think growing up, I didn't really have much around around me growing up in South Africa because I grew up during apartheid, and it was only until I made the full decision of uh, being a full-time artist and what that looked and meant for me uh, when I moved to Cape Town, and that was really where I was inspired by many artists. And one thing I did know was that professionally, I would have to wear many hats. So just started training myself on different ways. And I think they even taught that us, they taught that to us at university with a theater and performance program that I did. It was, you know, from first year, it was like, can you do sound? Can you do lighting? Can you do this? Can you do camera work? No, but you will learn. And and I think that really helped in terms of creating an independent mind frame of like, okay, so I know how to work with team members and I also know how to create work for myself. And I think that is very good to have as an artist, as an identity of just knowing I can, I'm an abundant artist and and I'm abundant because I can create what I want to see, right? So that was always my mind frame. That's fantastic, that self-sufficiency. And I'll just jump in to say that I actually had quite a different experience in my own um, university. I wish that they had had said things to us like, um, can you do lights and can you operate a camera? Um, To this day, I don't think I could do those things particularly well, um, even though now I have a role as a producer. So um, for me personally, going into um, university, the, the perception of the field was that you you go to school and you try to become a performer, and a performer is someone who goes out and performs on stage for a living. And um, I would say that even the projection of identities within my university of my professors um, was that, which is kind of ironic when you think about the fact that they're employed at a large university. I mean, that that was a secondary component of their career already. Um, so for me personally, this idea of identity, um, I, I always carried multiple identities. I was, I, I was always involved in many things, but the perception of what a performer and a musician was, um, I had a very narrow view of that in, in my undergraduate degree, and, and it has greatly developed since then. Um, thankfully. Uh, But I I think that um, some of our institutions do have a bit of an issue with the rhetoric they present, um, that they they expect us to believe that being successful means touring the world constantly. And and if we're being honest, that lifestyle is very difficult. um, And uh, not everyone will do that for part of their life, let alone their whole life. Um, so that was my own experience with classical music, which I would say is, is a very specific subset field as well. So um, very interesting. I think that that's fantastic that the theater community um, is perhaps a bit more realistic in what they're presenting to their students, that you need to have all these different I think components. there was that, and also maybe just the institution of growing up in South Africa and in Cape Town, where it was very hands-on. So I'm very grateful for the experience that I had and carry that with me wherever I go around the world. Yes, perfect. Um, Claudia or Sarah, Sarah, do you want to talk a bit about your perception of the field and and identity? Sure, yeah. Um, I had a similar experience to you, Jenna. Um, It was definitely um, taught to us that we were gonna have to hustle when we graduated, audition for a lot of things, start out by wearing a lot of different hats, like work part-time jobs, like just make connections, network all the time. But there was this idea that you would then make it. And it's the idea of what that looked like and what that was sort of um, perceived to be by institutions like that, um, that was passed on to us. Um, I remember being in a dance class, it's a little story, and one of my dance teachers said, 
she like paused the music and she said, there are 25 of you. And there's one job, one job. Who's going to get it? And then I don't know. I was trying to motivate us, I guess, to work harder and be less sloppy or something, but it was very misleading and kind of wrong because um, more than 50% of my graduating class are still working uh, in some capacity as a dance artist, but in so, so many different ways. Like there are people who started their own companies who are dancing in very different types of companies or who are just freelancing um, people who are dance educators, commercial dancers, choreographers, all that kind of stuff. And um, as you've mentioned, like the idea of working for a company and going in and, and doing your day's work and then that's it. And then you, and you perform and get paid to perform. Um, it's sort of, becoming non-existent, particularly um, in contemporary dance and classical dance and ballet, it's still something that still can exist. There are these institutions that employ dancers for a full year. Um, but in, in contemporary dance and jazz dance, a lot of, uh, most of my dancer friends, we, we go contract to contract. So then all of a sudden you're your own business and that's something that we weren't um, taught how to manage necessarily. It was alluded to a little bit, but um, we weren't given the tools for grant writing, taxes, um, being an administrator for yourself, and, and all that kind of thing. I, yeah, very similar experience. And, and I would like to also point out, just again, being in another field, that um, for musicians, the or standard orchestra job um, has just been diminishing like crazy in terms of full-time work. There are very few orchestras that employ full-time now. Most of those are even part-time, and then people would have a portfolio career. So very similar to that idea with dance. Um, Claudia, would you like to comment on this as well? Yeah, there's been some really interesting points made about um, this idea of like opportunity too, right? I think, I think there are these um, kind of anecdotal things that are said to young people or, or people who are in training that um, really create a strong sense of insecurity. And so I don't think, you know, it's done obviously out of any sort of malevolence, but um, I do think there is like this, this sense of you know there's 25 dancers here one's going to get the job you know, i think we all had a moment like that and i think this could probably be across disciplines it's not just within the arts um, of competitiveness and and kind of uh individualism that needs to occur when in reality what really should be happening is collaboration and um that was something i started to really notice in my last year of education that when I started to partner up with other um, other disciplines, other artists, other community members, that's when I could actually get a project done. And um, yeah, I think, I, I don't think that's something that is, has been institutionalized yet. And I hope, I hope it is eventually. And I, I think we're getting there. Um, I think we are starting to see kind of at least jargon around it, right? At least I think we have to hear these buzzwords about um, collaboration and synergies and, and all these things in the corporate world, and it's starting to trickle down. But uh, yeah, I definitely went through my schooling um, feeling very, very insecure about just graduating and being an artist because I had heard that the odds were so low. Um, and so was going throughout my training, actually kind of thinking I wasn't going to be an artist and that I would just end up teaching. And um, I think there's a, obviously a long tradition in being a professor of whatever it is of the discipline you did, you did learn. And that's kind of the, the mindset I had. And then I, you know, you start to grow up and you realize that you have other skill sets and I'm very much a, a pluralist in terms of the kinds of things I like to do like you, Jenna. And so um, those expectations and judgment started to kind of wean away as I, as I just developed my own, my own sensibilities. Again, I, I totally agree with you, Claudia, this idea of collaboration and, and the individual versus um, collaborative effort. Um, I had the same uh, situation as Sarah, where in my first year of my very first piano master class, studio class, I walked in and, and our professor in front of the 30 pianists from all years said, 10% um, of you might do something in music. 
And again, I think that that's an interesting comment because I would say probably about 50 to 60% of my colleagues from my year in university, I know what all of them are doing. They're still in music um, and in various capacities. You know, some are in church music, some are in opera, uh, some are in chamber music. Um, so there are all these different uh, ways that you can be successful as an artist and perhaps that very narrow um, identity is the original uh, perception, but we need to adjust those. And collaboration is, is definitely a key part to that. As we emerge, we need our networks to support us. Um, as uh, Jackie was mentioning, you know, bringing artists to her in order to be able to, you know, disseminate work uh, and work together and, and promote one another, that's it's very key. So, um, in, oh, go ahead, Jackie. So I'm wondering, like, just listening to everybody, and yes, I've had, I've had moments like that at university as well, but I'm, I'm wondering, is it just a tactic, like Sarah said, to make you work extra hard so that you can push yourself out of that box past that limit? It's like, come on, like, you know, and if we're sitting here and we recognize, well, our peers who are still working in the industry some way, somehow, maybe it's because of that tactic of like, oh, I've only got that one job, but in reality, it's actually, you know what, at the end of the day, we all work really hard. I'm just saying. I think there's some truth to that. And I, I think in addition, um, it's also how we measure success, mm. you know? So what is that threshold of making it, of, you know, being the full-time artist? You know, I, I think that's where we need to really start opening ourselves up and, and especially the gatekeepers that are within our communities and, and the people in, in um, kind of teacher positions uh, can consider this, right? In redefining what that really means in in the world we're moving in today that is just a completely different pace than the generation before. And not just having one form of success be the only yeah. thing that everybody has to go through or go towards, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and again, in, in discussing this, we're, we're, the research that I've done um, has just shown me that even those that some people might perceive as making it, whatever that means, um, they still have these portfolio careers and, and um, you know, our, our Juno award-winning artists are teaching and our, um, you know, visual artists are, are, are doing all kinds of things with corporations and um, our dancers are, are speaking to young people. And, you know, these are, these are all facets of being an artist. It's, they're not um, mutually exclusive. They're, they're components that make up your career. So uh, another question that kind of gets to this is, has someone actually projected an identity onto you? Do you feel like that has happened to you at different points in your career that you're told, no, you're not this, or you are this? Um, I know for me personally, I've, I've had people tell me, well, you have um, an administrative job, you're not a musician. I've had people tell me the complete opposite. Um, I've had people tell me no matter what, I'm always a musician, even if I don't perform anymore. So um, that's where this question is coming from. And I'd, I'd love to pose it out to you. Um, whoever would like to jump in on that as a projection of identity. Uh, yeah, I can get us started. Um, yeah, this is a fascinating question because I think we create, we project things onto ourselves and then we pick up the things that are being projected onto us. And um, it's interesting that we're all female. <laughs> And I think we've had, uh, we have very unique stories in terms of that in, in the arts. And um, I was told once by a mentor that being a visual artist is an old man's game. And so uh, I, I needed to wait. I needed to wait until I was old <laughs> to consider myself, um, I guess, that I earned my stripes, right? And yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things that are flung at us. Um, being an artist is, I think, uh, a political gesture too, to, to make that decision to take on this career. Um, and, and with that comes, I think, really interesting responsibilities to your craft. And so, yeah, I definitely went through uh, I would say about five years after graduation, considering I, I wasn't, I wasn't an artist, that I wasn't ready, that I was too young, that I didn't look like the people that were in the textbooks that I was reading about. Um, and so it took me uh, getting, volunteering, building my admin career, getting to know the people in, in the Ottawa community, um, 
to a point where I found my people. Um, Monster at Arts Court, love that place. <laughs> and uh, understanding where I fit in and all of it. And then that's when I think I felt comfortable enough to re-enter my practice. And so get, really understanding the market that I'm in um, was crucial to identifying with my career and becoming comfortable with being undefinable, really. I, I love that. And I will also mention in, in a pre-chat that we had had, I loved a, a comment that you made, Claudia, about identity and that for some people, um, the idea of an artist is integral to who they are. And for some people, it's integral to what they do. Um, and it can be one or the other or both at different times in your life. Um, some people can say, I am a musician, or some people would say, I work as a musician, or what I do is music. Um, and I, I really loved that comment that you had brought forward as well. Um, Sarah, do you want to comment on, on this idea of projecting identity? Sure, yeah. Um, a really like tangible place where I come up with uh, against this is often when they get you to fill in forms and you have to say like what your job is or what your career is and then you have to say where you work or like where your income is coming from for taxes purposes and this sort of thing and and where the main source of income is coming from changes for um, a lot of artists all of the time so definitely when I first moved to the city to Ottawa and I was mainly just teaching and it takes like a, a good amount of time when you don't know anyone in an artistic community to make those connections and start working um, for other artists with other artists so I had a bit, a bit of an identity crisis there for sure, where I was sort of, I guess I'm a dance teacher now, maybe I'm not a dancer. And um, that comes back to that whole thing about what you were saying, what you're doing versus how you identify um, in your own in your practice. And I think that a lot of other people would see what you're doing and how you're making the most money as being what your career is. And that's what you do. And I get it. Like, it's confusing for us as artists to put labels on ourselves. So I understand other people wanting to like simplify it and, and give you some kind of title. So it makes sense, but yeah, maybe they're the titles, like you said, um, with this whole portfolio career concept, um, could be updated or maybe we just need to reexamine how we identify. I know from my own research, again, income is, is such a fascinating component of identity because, um, when we take, um, overarching bodies uh, that do census, for instance, or Stats Canada, um, there are extreme limitations in what they're asking for, exactly as you described. What's your main job? Where, what is your main source of income? Um, and I think that, that that's something that, again, like you said, this portfolio career um, concept could mean you are a dancer. The teacher part is part of you being a dancer. Um, and that's the global term. I'm a portfolio, I'm a dancer with a portfolio career. My portfolio career has these four or five elements within it. And I will also say that, again, um, coming from the music discipline specifically, but I'm sure it would apply across disciplines, 80% um, of people hold more than one role um, when they're in music, in the music discipline. Um, and uh, over 50% hold more than two roles. So that just tells you how many people in our industry are, are working in this capacity um, and, and that we need uh, other industries and government to understand the work we do. We're seeing that with things like CERB, um, people having to, to demonstrate contracts for gigs that would have been upcoming. That's just not the way our industry always works. You don't necessarily have a signed contract for the next 20 gigs that you're gonna have, um, let alone the next you know, year. Um, and so this idea of income is definitely something that needs to be revisited. Um, Jackie, do you also want to comment on this idea of identity? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's a heavy one for me. I think coming from, coming from South Africa, and I think even as an artist, there's so many identities that were placed on me and having to redefine myself or to define myself or to have that whatever whatever people project on me and I think I've always had it growing up with it was my race um you know being black and then not black and then um you know and saying I'm I'm a colored or that I have an accent or stepping into the field as an artist here in Canada where it's very much aware of the accent that I have and then so working with that how you know there were so many things put on me and then as an artist as well 
um, what kind of art do you do? And so within that art frame, it's like, well, there's all these things that I do. And it's, it's like, well, what are you? <laughs> That's actually a question I get a lot. What are you? What are you, Jackie? I mean, and um, it has been really hard, very hard um, being here. Uh, but in saying so, it's also being freeing because within that, I had to um, stand up for myself in so many different platforms and just to stand still in a space of, you know what, just to be like, you can say whatever you want about me because that is your perception and I have no control over that. So whatever you perceive about me as an artist and what your ideas of an artist is for you, whether that's a painter or an actor or a storyteller, whatever it is for you, that is what you're going to claim for you. So no matter how much I try to explain myself to you, if you see me as a black person, if you see me as um, half and half, I don't know, no matter how much I try to explain, you're still going to be having your own perception of me and there's nothing that I can do about it. So all I can do is just stand in the presence of who I am and unbox that within me and whatever you take from that, that is my gift to you. You know, and so, um, yes, there has been a lot of that identity. And I think even as a woman, just working with that continuously and putting that foot down, you know. Absolutely. That's fantastic, Jackie. Um, I actually would also like to ask uh, Carmel about this um, this perception of identity and, and collaboration. Um, but just before I, I turn it over, um, I wanted to also say that, that this identity concept, one thing that I found very interesting, again, in, in looking at portfolio careers was that many, many, many artists who have I don't know what the percentage would be, 70 or 80% of their portfolio as an artist are also doing other things outside of the industry. And that also does not just detract from their artistry, meaning you can work in a restaurant, you can work as a barista, you can work as a graphic designer, you can work as whatever um, other component. Um, and, and that's, you're right. I mean, there are people who, who uh, expect certain lifestyles or have multiple interests and uh, again these things should detract from from who they are individually um, Carmel you wanted to comment hi I, I this is amazing listening to everybody um, and I don't want to take up too much uh, space or time um, I've been an artist for over 35 years um, and I I, I, and somebody had mentioned that, um, you know, the, the previous generation, which I would have been uh, certainly born in, um, I, I really kind of hate to say that um, not too much has changed. Um, and I say this from a place of um, looking at the systems that are at play uh, while we're trying to find our own identities, which are constantly flowing. Uh, I am not, you know, the same person, et cetera, et cetera. And the systems that are at play are really important to look at. It's a very, very, um, and we know this, uh, you know, and then you had mentioned, I think, that, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, the male, the man, and where they have, what they've accomplished. And I will add to that the white male in particular uh, in the system that has supported um, you know, sort of the loss of identity versus actually gaining identity and having it recognized through the self, not through the system. And as an Indigenous woman, I identify as female and two-spirit. Um, and, you know, it, it just blows me away over this lifetime of here I am with white skin, which uh, has given me uh, some privilege, which I resist constantly. Uh, because once uh, you get past this layer and they actually discover, uh, you know, my other identities, um, then, uh, then, it's, then things um, set in place that are based on uh, people's projections of what they think you are. And, and so I think uh, in deconstructing 
and I know this is a conversation that's been going on, you know, in deconstructing, I kind of look at decolonizing uh, language, whether um, no matter where we're coming from, uh, there has to be a level of, um, there's a reason why uh, collaborations uh, which have been going on forever and ever. In the indigenous world, without collaborating, we wouldn't exist. Everything is about community. Everything is about connecting with each other and holding each other together, that there's a responsibility to each other. In, in the art framework, sometimes that is completely the opposite world. I know because I studied for three years in the visual arts, and um, when it was over, everybody went off to their spaces. And in fact, we needed the opposite. We needed to be able to network with each other. We needed to become family with each other and support each other and bring each other up. Um, some people had uh, different um, uh, privileges uh, who I attended, you know, because I was, I was in art school with people who were from Sarajevo, uh, all over the world pretty much. And, and, and yet the objective of the system that we live in is to keep us apart. That is the objective. So when we look at competi competing against each other and setting us up to, um, in some ways, uh, you know, it's so punitive. The system is punishing. It's like, you know, only one out of all of you people are going to make it and, uh, and, and, and it doesn't build up self-esteem or self-worth. It just simply says, oh, you know, I'm not good enough. Well, we are good enough. And when we work in collaborative ways with each other, we find out just how good we all are because everybody brings something to a table that allows all of us to grow. I mean, as the director of the No Borders community, um, you know, of the art festival that's held every year in this city, um, it's, it's an extraordinary of people coming together on that level. Uh, because we don't know what to do with each other, maybe initially, and then suddenly it's like, of course we know what to do. We create a massive art uh, exhibition. We create, uh, you know, and open the doors for everyone. And so we're not trained on that level, unless you've grown up in community. Um, and, and, and in my case, uh, not, not a community of privilege. Uh, so everything had to be scraped and, you know, you had to work um, at creating yourself. And, and uh, fortunately, I picked up a few skills along the way that made it a little bit easier. So when I'm listening to everybody, I just keep thinking we have to break down the barriers that have been created and contrived to keep us all in the boxes. Here we are on Zoom in boxes. Uh, thank God we can break through this one, right? Uh, you know that it, it, it's about we, we have to really evaluate the systems and why are those systems in place? Why do we need those systems? Why are instructors still being instructing on a level that is about constriction rather than collaborating and opening up the system and showing us all that we can be connected? And uh, again, from an indigenous perspective, uh, there's very good reasons and we've learned uh, the hard way. You know, systems uh, like the apartheid that Jack about South Africa, which many of us understand and know because um, of being educated and understanding those frameworks. And right now in, uh, you know, uh, when we're looking at the Indian Act and residential schools in this country um, and the Truth and Reconciliation, you're going to see in there all these systems that have been contrived and what it did to the population of people and um, the recovery. It, it takes a long time. So I think we have so much in common and we have so many things that we can do together. Uh, and to, like, I'm just listening to all of you going, oh, I know where you could like, I, I need to talk to you, you know, this kind of stuff, right? Like, it's like, it's like, it's like we're, it's like we're creating a map to each other. Yes. You know, really we're creating a map and it doesn't have boundaries, uh, but it's, it's, it's opening up our imaginations to understand that we will, we will, uh, bring this together and the people together so that we can move forward and and hopefully this language can change thank you thank you
thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you. And I think it, even in just this discussion, and I see now in the chat um, a colleague from from law school. You know. Um, even being within our own silos within the arts industry, we're having the same issues, but we can't break those barriers to find the collective solution. So about these issues and um, figuring out how to how to have the system. I love that Jackie's raising her hand. I'll come over there in one second. Um, and having this system work in a positive, um, collaborative way, because that's what the arts are about. Jackie. I love what Kamel said. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love the whole theory of the boxes. I am literally doing my one woman show in February for the Undercurrents Festival, people in a black and white world. And it's about breaking free of those boxes. And if it's one of the main teachings that I've learned about being on this land is coming back to the circle. It's teaching that I'm from home, it's breaking those barriers. And like, how do we come back to the circle where we once sat around the fire? where we saw each other as equals and we saw forms of collaborations and sharing those stories to ignite each other and to lift each other up. Because it's not, it's not a matter of, who, of whether you win the race, it's how you win the race. Are you winning it together? Or are you winning it by yourself? You know, sorry. I just had to put that in there. <laughs> Thank you, Carmel. That's perfect. The last thing that I wanted to, to ask, and not everyone has to answer this question, um, in terms of a portfolio, how do you strike a balance for yourself personally between artistic and financial? I think that this really is meaningful, especially to young artists when they're when they're trying to build themselves. Um, how, how is it that you uh, define what you're doing for yourself artistically versus what you need to survive um, financially? Does anyone want to want to briefly talk about that before we get into many questions about? Operation and identity from the question box. Claudia, Sarah, Claudia. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a, a comment to that. I think um, it's a it's a tough balance, um, and I think you have to have some conversations with yourself <laughs> about um, the things that you're you're willing to do as as a business owner, as somebody who owns. I mean, I, I can say I own a commodity, you know, I, I create a product that product, you know, isn't traditional in terms of like the know, capitalist structures we live in, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a process of, um, th through those, actually those collaborations that you're taught, we're talking about so much of now, um, to learn about your value. So seeking out those conversations with not just mentors, but colleagues, friends in the community to learn about your value and then move forward with confidence in that, I think is, is a huge lesson I definitely learned in, in kind of um, starting to create that financial security. So uh, I knew I wasn't going to that confidence alone. I needed I needed the feedback and validation from my from people I trusted, and so I I initiated those conversations and and did my research. That's great. I know from from my own perspective, I always really struggled with the idea of the starving artist that was projected. Um, you know, from the time we're young, there there. Two very um, long-standing narratives, especially at least in classical music, of you know living on the edge of reality. That's one, the identity of you know madness and creativity, and the other is the starving artist. And I struggled with both of those. I really didn't identify with them. And so for me, um, coming out of university, I, I I was very practical. I was like, these are the things I want to do, and I know I can make a career out of this. Um, and I just had to wrestle with. The personal identity of not having that very narrow view of what a performer was um, and now that i i've decided this is who i am and all of these things are part of that um, i find that everything contributes both artistically and financially and my idea of artistic practice is not necessarily just putting myself on stage but being part of putting other people on stage and making their dreams and their artistic practice the best that they can be um, for me, that's an artistic vision too. So um, that's that's my thought on artistic uh, versus financial. Sarah, did, did you want to answer that or do you want us to go to questions? Uh, sure, I'll just quickly say a little thing about coming out of school um, for both 
in case anyone's watching and and that's their where they're at right now i think that um another thing that was sort of taught to us a little bit in school was that when you first graduate and enter the workforce, you don't have the luxury to say no to work that's in your field. Um, but it's important to, to like, to, to know what you're interested in doing and what's going to be artistically satisfying to you. And it's good to try all sorts of things to figure out what that is. But I did a lot of jobs at the beginning, like corporate, more commercial work that I knew I wasn't interested in and there's nothing wrong with it. And I have lots of friends who are, but I did it because it paid well. And now like it's a bit of research and a bit of time, but um, most of my colleagues all have something that, that creates some sort of stability in their life that allows them to then have the freedom to, to do the projects they're interested in and say no to the projects they're not to know that it will be okay because like they have a, a different, like a physical therapy practice or teaching or whatever it might be. Okay, so I'm gonna go to the, the question and answer box here. Thank you so much to those who have contributed. This is especially for BIPOC women or non-binary people uh, on the panel. Um, is there or are there career limitations uh, by standing up for yourself in the workplace the way that things are right now in the industry? And that being said, what makes a good boss um, in this age of the gig economy or portfolio career? Anyone have thoughts on that, Jackie? One first change the word of boss, that's an old term. Um, what makes a good leader, I would suggest, um, because that's just not just thinking of you, it's thinking about everybody else that comes with you, but you still in the lead. It's one, one thing of like, I don't know, that word for me is just like so old than me. I don't know, I just, I don't like the vibration of that word. Um, and, because when I, I hear that word, I see an image and there's a storyline that goes with that image and it carries on in my mind and I follow this story of this woman of what a boss is and domineering. And then and, and I think, uh, and that's just my own story. Uh, I would say just get rid of that whole word. Um, is it hard for a BIPOC woman to put her foot down and limiting the workplace? No. Does it? No. Um, other people might perceive it as that, but for me, no. If anything, it has created more platforms because my voice was heard because I wasn't afraid to speak my mind and my truth. And I think once you're able to break free from that, you know, you will attract the right people that will come to you because you broke free of that barrier of a lay. I, I want to even say could I even say it, a label, but under that description, no, you stand in your ground for who you are, for what you represent. And if that people do not accept you for what you represent, then it's not meant for you. Then you're meant to go somewhere else. Then you are being redirected to where you meant to go. Um, so no, it doesn't limit that extent. Thank you, Jackie. Anyone else want to comment on that question? Just as uh, identify as uh, indigenous uh, lesbian, uh, to spirit, uh, my whole life has been about uh, some uh, certainly on many levels limitations for standing up for myself and standing up for others, which I'm, uh, I'm is much easier. It comes much easier to me to stand up for others and the injustices of others. Uh, I've seen a lot of things happen uh, as an artist, uh, as a musician. Uh, in my life, and um, and ultimately, uh, we have to again uh, deconstruct, decolonize, de everything around. Um, you know what people are taught. There are still uh, instructors in the art world who are given, you know, the lay of the land, which is uh, again not so much about bringing people up. Um, and not encouraging a voice. I mean, as musicians, we look at the instruments that we play, the music that comes from our, our voices as our strengths, you know, and, and, and they're so, and, and, and they're our voice. They're a part of who we are. And, um, and so it's really, really important. Definitely get rid of uh, language like bosses and really start looking at breaking down the structures, not accepting what we're supposed to be accepting, uh, you know? So, so it's really important that um, we look at the kind of thinking uh, 
and we need more decolonized thinking before we can break down the frameworks that have been dictated to all of us. And so um, that's what I have to say about uh, limitations. They're everywhere, but we're only limited by what we allow people to do to us. And when you're young, when you're vulnerable, which I've been, uh, it's really difficult because you want to get ahead. You want to make a living. You want to be acknowledged for the work that you're doing and the knowledge that you have. And, and there is a way to do that, and it's together. And that's everything for this episode. If you enjoyed this one, catch our upcoming sessions by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes, or check out artsnetottawa.ca. Thank you to our conference partners, Wallex Art Supplies, Invest Ottawa, and Shifter Agency, and to you for listening. <laughs>